Well, we turn to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 20 on uh, page 20 of the Bibles. And uh, once there was a, a rogue trader called Jack. He was very interested in making a quid or two wherever he could. And one way he did that was by thinning down the paint that he used with white spirits, so that went a little bit further, and he could do the job for that little bit less. One day he was doing uh, a job on a church, because his price was so competitive, and churches like that. And so he set to putting up the ladders and the planks and cleaning the brushes and thinning down the paint, as he normally did. Well, Jack was up on the scaffolding, painting away. The job was nearly done when suddenly there was this loud clap of thunder. The rain came pouring down and the thin paint came off from all over the church. And Jack was so surprised, he was knocked right off the scaffold and fell on the lawn below. Now, Jack was no fool. He knew this was judgment from the Almighty. So he fell on his knees and he cried, Oh God, forgive me, what should I do? And from the thunder, a mighty voice spoke, Repaint, repaint, and thin no more. (laughs) Wise words for all of us, and as we shall see in our passage, uh, for Abraham too. Let's uh, pray before we begin. Father God, once again, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of Abraham that we are Uh, studying and going through these weeks. We praise and thank you, Lord, that it's so like our own lives. Abraham is no remote figure. He's just like one of you or me. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us through your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to learn from it this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last week we saw how Abraham was uh, a true friend of God who walked the path of faith. He was a hero of the faith. In chapter 18, the Lord visits him in his tent to remind him of the promise. And in chapter 19, God hears his prayer on behalf of Sodom. So in chapter 19, verse 20, it says, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived It was a great spiritual triumph. And what's more, as chapter 19 progresses, we see the effects of God's judgment on this world. In fact, it's a full-blown warning with bells and whistles about the danger of sin in our lives. If anything is going to make uh, Jack the rogue painter or our faithful friend Abraham fall from their respective scaffolds and take note of God's judgment then surely it must have been standing on that hill overlooking the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah and watching the plumes of smoke rise from where those cities had once stood. But now, in chapter 20, what a disaster. What a disaster. Why? Because we see that Abraham has completely ignored what he has seen of God's judgment and he completely messes up again. In almost the same way, in fact, as he did when he visited Egypt in chapter 12. Do you remember? Abraham goes down to Egypt through the Negev to escape the famine in Canaan. And in Egypt, Abraham fears what Pharaoh might do. So he lies about Sarah and says that she is his sister. And Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem and then the lie is discovered. And here in chapter 20, 
Abraham is still living his nomadic existence, and once again he heads down through the Negev towards Egypt. And he ends up staying in this place called uh, Gerar. He's obviously afraid of Gerar's king, and because he slipped, and he quickly slips into the same old ruse once again, doesn't he? He claims that Sarah is his sister. And Sarah, in a passage that must give to uh, hope to all women of a certain age, uh, is immediately sent for by Abimelech, the king of Gerar, and taken into his harem. But Abraham is older and wiser now, isn't he? And he's walked with confidence before God, hasn't he? So surely he'll put things right. So does he leap to Sarah's defense and organize armies to release her, as he did for his nephew Lot when he was taken by the four kings in chapter 14? Uh, No. Does he loudly uh, protest and, and shout for Sarah to be returned? No. Does he even pray for her? Not that I can see. In fact, it is God, in his mercy, who steps in pretty directly to stop Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah and committing, committing adultery. So we see in Abimelech's dream in verses 3 to 7, God gives this severe warning to Abimelech. He says, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. In fact, the rooms of all the, of all the women of the court are sealed up as a kind of portent or warning of the death that would fall on them if the king went ahead with his adultery. Verse 7 says, Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. It's not a friendly warning, but it's an effective one because Abimelech does exactly what God tells him to do. But despite this, despite God's intervention, his mercy, so this is a, a story which is a disaster for Abraham because he's done this all before in Egypt. And do you remember after the last time when Abraham returned from Egypt into Canaan, he went to the altar near Bethel in chapter 13 and he called on the name of the Lord. And don't you think at that time that he called on God and he made a promise to the Lord? Wouldn't he have said something like, never again, Lord, forgive me for my cowardice and my lies. I see what I've done now. I shall never put Sarah at risk like that again. But also, despite having been so close to God, the friend of God here, and having seen the awesome power of God's judgment in chapter 19, it seems that all of this had no effect on Abraham whatsoever. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So how many times have you ended up with your head in your hands saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. I never thought I'd do that again. And at the time, perhaps you mean it. You mean it in your hearts. But at the back of your mind, there's a little voice that says, but I will, but I will, I will do that again. Or as Paul would say, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there beside me. Romans 7. Or as Hugh Grant would say, it was just a moment of madness. But it's never just a moment of madness, is it? 
Our sin doesn't just creep up on us one day and burst out, leaving us thinking, where did that come from? No, I think we have to recognize that above all, our hearts are full of deceit. Even when we're great people of faith, like Abraham and should know better, even when we're mature Christians and been coming to this church for many, many years, it is much more likely, I think, that we see a build-up to our sin. Perhaps a pattern of behavior over many years, a series of small decisions, a negative attitude, or simply tiredness or stress that leads to having less control over your emotions. It's what one preacher called a gunpowder trail to sin. And that's my first point this morning, the gunpowder trail to sin. Or how can we spot sin coming? And then we go on to look at the devastation of sin. And finally, by way of encouragement, we will finish with the defeat of sin. So first, the gunpowder trail to sin. We see Abraham here flirts with proximity to sin, doesn't he? Do you see in verse 1, he moves down into the region of the Negev, which is on the way to Egypt. And like Egypt, it's populated by these polygamous kings who think that it's right to take into their harem whoever, uh, whatever available woman happens to come along. And this time there's no reason, no apparent reason for Abraham's journey. There was no famine to drive him out of Canaan as there had been in chapter 12. He just seems to drift down closer to Egypt and closer to the king of uh, Gerar, who he believed, verse 11 tells us, to have no fear of God. Secondly, sin derives from the fear of men. Verse 11 goes on to describe how Abraham, Abraham said to himself, and they will kill me because of my wife. Thirdly, sin derives from half-truths. When Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister, it is a half-truth, which verse 12 explains. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. Do you see the gunpowder trail that leads to sin here. First, Abraham puts himself close to sin. Worse, he is afraid of what people might think of him or do to him. And then he tries to convince himself that what he's doing is okay by using half-truths. But there's more, because Abraham then tries to shift the blame onto God. But you know, you can only blame God by believing a lie about God. Notice in verse 13 how he says, And God, and God had me wander from my father's household. What does he mean when God had me wander? God had just been given the most important promise in the history of the world to Abraham. To make him into a great people. To give him a land as far as the eye could see. To make him into a blessing for the nations. God says that Abraham was a prophet in verse 7. That's the first time the Bible was anywhere, anywhere called anyone a prophet. It was hardly a call to wander aimlessly. But Abraham was feeling sorry for himself, wasn't he? See, God made me leave the security of my father's household, and he caused me to wander. You see, his whole sense of call and service, what he could do for God, was lost for the moment as he wallowed in his self-pity and the memories of what he had given up for God. And fifthly, to complete the gunpowder trail, Abraham convinces himself that it's not all his fault. He tries to limit his responsibility by implicating Sarah in the sin too. He, he says he was not the only one that deceived Abimelech. Sarah had said that she was his sister as well, even if she was only doing what he had told her to do. You see, you may 
recognize some of these gunpowder trails in your own life. They may include some of these. They may be different. I don't know. But I hope that you do. Because the gunpowder trail eventually leads to the barrel of gunpowder and the devastation that is caused by sin. So what do we see? Well, firstly, next slide, that sin is never private. You see, Abraham must have thought that he had never been found out, didn't he? But Abimelech discovers Abraham's little self-protecting lie, and the truth will out, as they say. But you see, the shame doesn't stop with Abraham. He wasn't the only one affected by his sin. No, Abimelech and all his officials were very much afraid, verse 8 says. You see, they have to understand that these kings were polygamous, but they weren't adulterous. At least if they wanted another man's wife, then the social convention was that you bumped off that man before you took the wife first, just as David did with Uriah the Hittite later on. And any hint of scandal was a concern to the whole kingdom. The king would be made to look foolish and weak because he had not dealt with Abraham first, which is why he tries to demonstrate his innocence so publicly by giving Abraham so many sheep and cattle and slaves and inviting him to stay in land and live wherever he likes so that everybody could see him. However, Abimelech was not happy with Abraham, was he? Notice in verse 16 the heavy irony as he says to Sarah, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. He knows now that Abraham is actually a husband But he still can't resist saying, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver, repeating the lie that had been told. Think about this for a moment. Abraham is the prophet, the one who is supposed to be the leader of the great nation and a blessing to those around him. Abimelech is the outsider who actually turns out to fear God more than Abraham ever expected. And what is Abimelech supposed to make of these Israelites. Now put yourself in the position of a non-Christian who you've been praying for and hoping to witness to. And then think what would happen if your own sin became public. What are they supposed to make of these Christians? Now I don't know what you think when you hear of a well-known Christian going, going under in some kind of sexual or financial scandal but I hope that you have no pride. I hope that you know enough about your gunpowder trails to sin to think there but for the grace of God go I. Secondly, we can see that sin can jeopardise our whole call, service or ministry. You can see this sin of Abraham's was no small thing. Think back to chapter 18 and verse 14. God's promise to Abraham... He says that Sarah would bear Abraham an heir within one year. So when Abraham so casually allows Sarah to be taken into Abimelech's harem, what is he putting into jeopardy? Well, it's only the salvation of the entire world. You see, this baby to conceive between Abraham and Sarah was meant to be the founder of the great nation, a blessing to all those others. And just as Ishmael could never be the answer without Sarah being involved, well, Abimelech's baby, carried by Sarah, without Abraham being involved, could never fulfill the promise either. 
You see, and if we continue on our sin and our Christian lies, then our service for God, whatever we're doing for him, becomes a joyless duty, a burden and a tie, rather than the privilege that it should be. Because simply we're not finding our joy in Christ, but we're looking elsewhere. Which brings me to the fact that our sin is also sin against God. You see, there are many victims in this case. Sarah, who was given over. Abimelech, who was deceived. The women of the court, who, cut, who suffered the collateral damage of infertility. And perhaps even Abraham, if Abimelech hadn't been prevented from sleeping with his wife. But the first and the primary victim of sin is always God. Look at verse 6. God says to Abimelech, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. Not Abraham, not Sarah, but against me. You see, all sin is against God. It is against his image and the standards he sets for us people to live in this world by. At the root of sin is having no fear of God. It's ironic in verse 11, isn't it, where Abraham accuses Abimelech of having no fear of God, and yet it transpires that Abimelech probably fears God more than God's own prophets. See, our sin demonstrates that we have no fear of God, no fear of his judgment, no fear of losing our relationship with him, which is the most precious thing that we have. So the devastation of sin. Sin is never private. It always affects others. Sin jeopardizes our call and our service, and sin is primarily against God. But just as before, in chapter 13, this is not the end of the story. We must be encouraged because for Christians, God has defeated our sin. We've seen it all, of, all the way through the story of Abraham's triumph and disasters. We've seen Abraham achieve great things. We've seen him completely mess up time and time again. But the big constant throughout this story is God, who is rich in grace and mercy. So what's the first step to receiving this grace and mercy in our lives? Well, firstly, it's to step down from our self-justifying, self-righteous pride. Do you see that in verses 11 to 13? Abraham is just trying to justify himself with his half-truths and lies about God and limitation of guilt. It's only when he's shamed by Abimelech's sarcasm and generosity that Abraham finally faces the truth. He gets on his knees and he prays. You see, the first step for us in receiving the grace and mercy of God after repetitive sin is to step down from that false hope of self-justification and self-righteous pride. We have to face the truth of, who we, of what we are. We are sinners. The law is at work in our hearts. We all have moments of madness. If we never face up to this, then we're trying to continue and convince God that we're not as bad as we, think, as we might think we are. We're bringing our good works, our kindness, our place on the coffee rotor, our sermons, the things we are proud of, and, and say, look, I'm not all bad. But what we're really saying is, surely these good things must outweigh the bad things I do. And in effect, we're denying the gospel. We're saying, yes, I'm justified by faith, 
but my works help a little bit too. What did Jesus say to such people in Luke 18? He told them the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. So we're one sinner here this morning, serving coffee to another bunch of sinners. We're one sinner preaching to another bunch of sinners. We're all in this together. We do do a lot of pretending in church, don't we? And perhaps as we see God move in our church now, as we see more and more people coming together to pray on Wednesday mornings and in our prayer focus and committing to pray for others through 111 prayer, then perhaps we'll be seeing a breaking dawn of honesty and we'll start to get real with each other about our struggles, our temptations and our sins. You see, we need each other just as we need the Holy Spirit and the grace and mercy of God. That's our starting point. But thankfully, that's not all. If it were, then the Christian gospel would be no better than Alcoholics Anonymous, would it? But as we see in our passage, there's this tiny little word in verse 16 which gives a clue as to what is needed to be done about our sin. A tiny foreshadowing of what was to come. And it's the word to cover in verse 16. Kippur in Hebrew. The meaning here is that Abimelech paid a thousand shekels of silver to Abraham. It was lots of money, eleven and a half kilos of silver, to cover the sin against Sarah, to hide it, to cover it, to make it look as if it had never happened. But later that same word is used to describe the mercy seat or atonement cover with the great rings of the cherubim which covered God's law in the Ark of the Covenant and thus hid our sins from the sight of the law. This, says verse 16, is Sarah's vindication. Not that the sin never happened or that Sarah hadn't been involved. It had, and she was. But the payment of silver covered it over as if it had never been. Our sin is obliterated from sight, is covered over by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, God was a friend to Abraham, wasn't he? And Jesus Christ was a friend of sinners. In Luke 7, what did people say about Jesus? They said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Friends, Jesus is your friend and my friend because we are all sinners. Do you know what? Jesus also said, greater love has no one than this but to lay down one's life for one's friends. And on that cross, God treated Christ as though he was a mean person, as though he was someone consumed by anger, as someone who swears, as someone addicted to sexual images, as someone who goes out with his work colleagues and joins in with a malicious banter, 
as someone who flirts with drinking as much alcohol as they can take without making a fool of themselves on the way home. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin is hidden. It is covered. It is obliterated from the sight of God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how is sin defeated in our lives? By knowing that we are sinners. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and beyond cure. But also by knowing that God is merciful and gracious. Our sin has been obliterated and covered by the cross of Jesus. And where does that leave us? It leaves us with what John Piper calls gutsy guilt. You see, we recognize our weakness, but we also recognize God's amazing grace in our lives. We recognize that we've been saved by faith alone, but also that we are sanctified, made holy by faith alone. We don't try to change in order to justify ourselves, to win the approval of others or to win the approval of God. We change because of who Christ has made us in him because of our new identity in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses Christians who've been involved in sexual immorality. He makes it clear that God condemns sexual immorality. No one who is sexual immoral will enter God's kingdom, he tells them. But he doesn't then say to the Corinthians, so pull your socks up, try harder, use more self-control. No, he reminds them of who they are. That is what some of you were, he says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So finally, in verse 17, Abraham finally gets it. And with gutsy guilt, Abraham gets back to his calling in life. And he prays a blessing on Abimelech, his wife and his slave girls, so that they can have children again. God hears his prayer for Abimelech's household. And in chapter 21, God, with amazing grace, will hear Abraham's prayer for Sarah too. Abraham is back. He is loved, he is redeemed, and he can live out his calling once again. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, come to you this morning, having heard your word from Genesis, a story of a different culture many, many thousands of years ago, and yet your word speaks to our heart too. We know, Lord, that we have sinned. We know, Lord, that there are certain sins in our lives that just keep popping up time and time again. Lord, we come to you. We say sorry. We recognize our sin before you. We recognize our pride and our arrogance that has tried to justify ourselves before you. We come asking for your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace. And we put ourselves in your hands that we might live new lives in the power of your spirit, living and serving you in the name of Jesus. Amen.